This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Uh, my son Jackson downloaded an app onto his phone where you can modify your face, make it look a bit different. So Jackson took my face and did this to it. I thought it was neat that I grew my hair back. <laughs> Apparently the older I get, the more I get. That's something to look forward to. I sent that to my wife and I'm like, hey, not too bad, right? Kind of a yuppie, hippie Jesus. That's a Jesus in my, that's a Jesus, a God in my image. That's God in my image. We do that, don't we? Don't we make God in our image? Someone said that God made us in his image and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. That if triangles had a God, he surely would have three sides. A wise man said, what you think about God, when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. So this towards the end of our summer series, this summer mixtape, looking at the biggest themes in the Bible, the biggest songs in the Bible, and some of my own favorites. Just taking a couple weeks to think about God. How does God reveal himself? What does God look like? What does God act like? Last week we began to look at a passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. We're going to pick that up again this week. That passage in Exodus 34 is the most quoted, most cited, most referenced passage in the entire Old Testament. It comes up 27 times. Prophets quote it. Poets quote it. The words of God himself describing himself. We're going to look at it again today. Pick up some things we didn't look at last week. But let me put that passage in context for you. Because it reveals God. It shows us God as he is. It's God as God wants to be known, not God in our image. Israel had come up out of Egypt. They met meeting with God at the mountain. Moses had gone up to receive the law to enter into covenant relationship with God, to walk with God. Israel decided it needed a golden calf to follow. They continually complained and griped, and God said, fine, go to the promised land, but you're going without me. I'm not going to go with you. You're going on your own. Moses pleading. says, no, 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 please. Do not forsake us. Do not leave us. God says, okay, let's try again. And God reveals himself with these words in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. You follow along in your copy of God's word on your device and paper. Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. Listen. The Lord passed before Moses, and the Lord proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Last week we kind of imagined God cutting a record. Now God's a little bit old school. So instead of a mixtape, he's going to cut a record. And we looked at side A last week. God is, is full of motherly compassion. That word merciful. 
There is a passion and an action that go together as God engages with his kids, as God engages with his people. And is full of mercy, like a mother cares for her kids. But God is also full of noble generosity. He's gracious. The generosity that comes from high to low. The generosity that overflows. A generosity that, that is more than you could possibly expect. And also that God is full of loyal love. Loyal love. I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. The kind of love that you can trace through the book of Ruth. This is what God is. You, if you weren't able to be with us last week, you can go to whoishouseontherock.com and you can watch that, you can listen to that. That was side A. We like side A. Who likes side A? Side A is awesome. Full of mercy and grace. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I like side A. And side A is popular for a reason. But there is a side B. And so today let's look at side B. Equally important. Equally a part of the self-revelation that came from God to Moses for his people. So take out your notes and we'll write down some things together. And just like we wrote down last week at the very top, who is this record? Who cut this record? Yahweh, Yahweh is his name. Yahweh is the Lord, the Lord is how he starts Exodus 34, that passage. The revelation of God's name. This goes back to Exodus 4 when God calls Moses to commission him. And Moses says, who, who, when they're going to ask me what God is going to bring them out, who, what should I say? And God says, you tell them that Yahweh, I am, has sent you. The very present God, the present God, the relational God, the covenant-making God. The one who enters into the story of his people. It's about promise and relationship. And that's the, still the same God the qualities and the characteristics that we're going to look at today. Last week, we looked at most of six and a little bit of seven. Today, we're going to look at a little bit of six and most of seven. Okay. Slow to anger. Who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God gets angry. God brings judgment. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Does your understanding and your view of God, the image that you keep and the image that you cherish, a God who gets angry, a God who brings judgment, the record has a side B. This is equally part of the self-revelation of God. But here's the interesting thing about God's anger and his, ju his, his judgment. And it's important to put this in context. That, that God can get angry and not bring judgment. And there's times when God brings judgment. And there's no, no, no anger attached to it. The first time, the very first time in the Bible that we learn that God gets angry. The very first time that's described is back in Exodus 4. When God calls Moses to lead the people free. Five times Moses is like, not really my thing. I really prefer not to. I'm not really up to the challenge. Five times God says to Moses, uh-uh, I don't want to do this. Find someone else. And it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. That's the very first time. But here's the interesting part. God got angry. There's no judgment. In fact, in that moment, God concedes to the will of Moses. Moses, is anyone else? And God says, I tell you what, Aaron's coming along. Aaron can help you. God got angry, but there was no judgment. 
And you can go through the book of Genesis, and there's lots of examples of judgment, isn't there? Adam and Eve. Was there judgment? Yeah, there was judgment. No mention of God's anger. The flood. Judgment. No mention of anger. Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment. No mention of God's anger. Apparently, just because God gets angry doesn't mean there'll be judgment. And there are times when God's judgment comes down, and it's not necessarily attached to his anger. What does that mean for us? Well, think about it this way. Imagine that you're refereeing a child's game, your kid's game. I don't think it's wise, but let's just say you decide to do it. Pick a sport. Maybe it's soccer. We're a soccer family. So I'm out there and I'm refing the game. Maybe Lucas is, is in the goal. Damien and his friends playing against him. Tip City versus Troy. Ooh. All right. I'm refing the game. One player fouls the other player. It's my job as the referee to do what? I call the foul. It's no. Yellow card. Maybe we just go right to red. Maybe it's that bad. Red card, you're out of here. One player fouled another player. And then later in the game, Lucas punches another player. He wouldn't do that. Judgment. Red card. He's also my kid. Guess what there is? There's probably a little anger too, isn't there? Why? Because he's my kid. I'm in relationship with him. And what we see in the Old Testament, what we see throughout the narrative is God's anger often rises up with those to whom God has made himself specifically known. Those to whom God has bound himself in relationship. So you see God getting angry with Moses. You see God getting angry with Israel. There's a revelation there, and with that revelation comes an expectation. So to help us understand the complexity of God's anger and God's judgment, we're going to look at a narrative in Numbers 14. So if you take your Bible, find Numbers 14. So you've got Genesis, then there's Exodus, then there's Leviticus, and then there's Numbers. Okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's part of the first five books of your Bible. Looking for numbers. And within numbers, you're looking for a, a, a big number 14. We're going to use this story to help us understand God's anger a little bit better. In Numbers 14, I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 12. I'll make a little observations as we go. Okay. Context. Uh, Moses has sent out the spies to the promised land to get a lay of the land, to understand what's ahead of them. So tactically, they can understand from a military perspective how they should move in and how they should conquer. The spies come back and they all say this. This land is awesome. This is good land. They're bringing back the bounty of the land. And it is good. But above and gentlemen rise up and say, um but we can't take it. There's no way we can take this land. It's full of giants. It's full of opposing armies. It's full of a people that we cannot get through. We can't do it. Two of them say, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, yes, there's giants. And yes, yes, there's people there. But God has given us this land. All we need to do is be faithful. If we are faithful, God will give us the land. The people, they, can't, they don't want to handle any more of it. They, can't, they start to, there's an uprising. There's a revolt. There's complaint and there's griping. 
In the beginning of Romans, of beginning of Numbers 14, it says this. All the congregation raised a loud cry. All the people wept that night. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by a sword? Our wives, our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua, Caleb, those were the two spies that, you know, said good things. The land which we pass through to spy out is exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Okay, just come back here a little bit. Hey, do you understand? They're griping and they're whining. God has promised to bring them into the land. They're griping and they're whining. The spies say, hey, it's good. This is really good. God will bring us in. Now let's stone them and let's go back to Egypt and slavery. Let's elect a new leader because the populace always knows what's best. And we'll go our way back. And did you notice it said the glory of the Lord came upon the tent of meeting. God put his foot down. As if we're on a road trip. And it was murmuring and it was murmuring and it was murmuring. Then it was bickering and it was bickering and it was bickering. Then it turned into punching and pinching and punching and pinching and punching and pinching. And wailing until all of a sudden dad turns around and hey! That's enough. God makes himself visibly manifest to the people. And this is what he says in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. In your notes, let's write this down together. First song title, number one, on side B, Volume Rising. Volume Rising. Write that down. Because God is slow to anger. How long will they despise me? How long will they not believe in me? Within the story, it's over months and weeks. God has proven himself. God proved himself in Egypt as he delivered them through amazing and mighty plagues. God proved himself at the Red Sea as he delivered them on dry land to the other side and destroyed the armies of Egypt. God proved himself again and again and again at the mountain and moving forward. It seems that time is a factor when it comes to the anger of God. God does not have a hot head. God does not have a short fuse. 
In fact, you can see that if you just look at the book of Numbers alone, the first 10 chapters are almost like a mom and a dad getting ready for a road trip with the kids. We're going to go for a road trip. The first 10 chapters, this is uh, where we're going. This is uh, where everyone sits. This is how we line up. This is what we're taking. This is the rules of the road. Okay? And all of a sudden, chapter 11 hits. And they start complaining and they start griping. They complain. And it says that God's anger started to burn the outsides of the camp. And the Lord's anger was kindled against them. Chapter 12. Aaron and Miriam, those are Moses' siblings. They feel they don't get enough screen time um, because it's all about Moses. It's Moses this, it's Moses is that. And, and Aaron and Miriam are like, well, maybe we should get more screen time. I mean, we're just as important as Moses is. I mean, Aaron, he's like the head you know, priest guy. And Miriam, she's worship leader. She, why, why, why does Moses get all the props and all the credit? God shows up and it says his Anger kindled against them. Miriam walked away with leprosy, which means she had to stay outside the camp. We see the volume rising on God's anger as again and again and again, people resist and complain and are not thankful and they gripe. And these are the people that God has bound himself to relationally. So there's an expectation there. And it leads up to this moment of judgment as the spies go out and the spies come back and the people are like, hey, let's head back to slavery. Let's head back to slavery. Let's pick ourselves a new leader. What I want you to do in chapter 14 is jump down to verse 21. Jump down to verse 21. I want to show you something as the volume rises towards God's judgment. Numbers 14, 21. Truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I think that's really important. That means that God is moving time and what's going on on earth towards a very specific destiny. And that destiny is when the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. If you remember last year when we did the book of Revelation, we see this picture where all of earth and heaven come together again and the whole earth shines with the glory of the Lord. It's moving towards that place. God says, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's gonna happen. What we see is those who do not want to participate in that story. Those who resist that story, God removes. God says, we're going this way. Those who resist that, God removes. But he's always faithful to bring a remnant through. He's always faithful to bring a remnant through. You're going to see that in this next section. Ten spies go out. Eight complain. They're going to be removed. Two will go into promise. Of all the generations present in Israel, those who resist are going to be removed. And others will go forward. Verse 22. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness, and yet put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant, Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went. His descendants shall possess it. Now, 
since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Again and again, these people put God's patience to the test. He says 10 times. So if you go back in the narrative from leaving Egypt to this point, there's 10 significant moments where they rebel and they resist. Things like um, uh, the Miriam episode, things like uh, the spy episode, things like the golden calf episode. Again and again and again, they put God to the test. But he is slow to anger, right? But he will punish the guilty. So he says, some will not see the promised land. And God tells Moses, all right, time to turn. We're not going that way. We're supposed to go that way. We're all not going to go that way now. Let's turn this way. We're going to take it another direction. A remnant will make it, but not everybody. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Isn't that interesting? What you say, I will do. It harkens back to what Pharaoh said. We're going to kill all their kids, firstborn. So how does God judge Egypt? God goes and he kills all of their firstborn. Your dead bodies, verse 29, shall fall in this wilderness and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward. Isn't that interesting? It's 20 years old and upward. Who grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity for 40 years and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do. All the wicked congregation who gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall come to a full end and they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report about the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive. Slow to anger. But by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. Let's go back and die in Egypt. The anger reached a tipping point, and God answers them according to their words, and they will die. Important, God says that the children will suffer because of the, care, the parents' unfaithfulness. That's still the same today. You know that, right? Parents, 
grandparents. Your children walk in the wake of your faith. They exist in the ripples of your choices. God eternally links the two. And it can go both ways. For a father and a mother who are faithful, the children walk within a house that experiences the blessing in the presence of God. It just makes sense. But parents, as we are unfaithful, our children will experience and suffer the consequences of our faithlessness. But the kids will get to go into the promised land. I think that's important. Especially in light of what we read in Exodus 34. And I want us to go back there and look at that. Exodus 34, remember 6 and 7. If you look at verse 7, okay, he's slow to anger, who will by no means clear the guilty. This is verse 7. I should have had you put your finger in it. I apologize. It was not very thoughtful on my part, was it? Like it took me up to this point to find Genesis. Exodus 34, verse 7. Who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's cold. That's cold. Well, how do we understand that in light of what we just read? Use the Bible to interpret the Bible, okay? So is like, this like a generational curse thing? No, there's no such thing as generational curses. Okay. What we do see is a tremendous consistency that God treats each generation on their own. Consistently. He's loving. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving. But he will not clear the guilty. Each generation experiences God in light of that truth. So God is saying, hey, you made these choices. You're not going into the promised land. The next generation, they'll have their opportunity to walk before me in faithfulness. They get to walk before me. And they will have to make their choice. How will they follow? Now, those of us who have read ahead in the story, what happens? What do they choose? They do the exact same thing as their parents. They choose adultery. They choose idolatry. They choose fornication. They choose foolishness. They choose to not obey and not keep covenant with God. And so what will they experience? The slow anger of God, which will reach a tipping point for the whole nation of Israel. That's what Jeremiah calls the cup of wrath. Write that down in your notes. I want you to write it down at the bottom of your notes. Skip a line and then write it at the very bottom. Cup of wrath. It's an important metaphor and image as we understand God and his anger. The cup of God's wrath. So you have volume rising, skip a line at the very bottom in that third space, write down a cup of God's wrath. If you're watching online, make sure you write that down. I want you to jump, again, Exodus 34, but jump to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, to understand this very, very important image in Scripture. Okay, Jeremiah 25 is a little bit more difficult to find. If you take your Bible and you open it to the middle, 
very middle, you'll probably land in the book of Isaiah, okay? Probably land in the book of Isaiah. Go one more book, Isaiah, then Jeremiah, okay? Open your Bible, Isaiah. One more, you'll get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah is a prophet. It speaks at the end of the nation of Israel's walk before God, often called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah 25, I'm going to read it and I'll make some observations as we go. But this is after decades and generations of unfaithfulness and wandering and forsaking and, and leaving the rule of God. Jeremiah 25, I'm going to start in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, Speaking to everyone. This is for everyone. Jeremiah says, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. I have spoken persistently to you. You have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent you all his servants and prophets, saying this. What did they say? Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and his evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and to your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them. Or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Because he's what? He's slow to anger. Right? The volume is rising. The volume has been rising for generations. Okay? Look at verse 7. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Your choices bring about your consequences. Verse 8, there, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. You have not listened to me repeatedly. I have warned, the prophets have warned, generation upon generation, you have not heeded the warnings and my anger has been rising and you are bringing about your own destruction. And now judgment comes. And God will use another nation to judge Israel. That's, that's, I think it's an important. There's always a one-off. God does not walk through Israel with a giant sword and just start slaying people. God will use another nation to judge another nation. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. If you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, that should really kind of confuse you a little bit. Nebuchadnezzar is not a faithful God follower. Nebuchadnezzar is not a man of fear of the Lord. He's not allegiant to God. He not wake up in the morning singing the Psalms of David. He's a pagan king who wants to rule everything. 
Nebuchadnezzar is the king who comes through, lays waste to Judah and Jerusalem, takes the current king, drags him out with his kids, slits the throat of all of his kids in front of the king, and then pokes the king's eyes out. That's Nebuchadnezzar. And God says, I will use him as my servant. I will use him as my servant. So does Nebuchadnezzar, do you find that a little repulsive? Is Nebuchadnezzar a little bit repulsive to you? The values of Nebuchadnezzar, is that repulsive to you? Are there current countries that you find repulsive to the United States? Oh, you be careful. They can become the servants of God. For the cup of God's wrath has been rising and has reached a brinking point. And so God gives to Jeremiah a very important vision. Okay? Starting in verse 10. Okay? I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The cup of wrath. Then after 70 years are completed, I'll punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. That's real important. Even as you look at a geopolitical, geohistorical scale, okay? Israel, you didn't follow. I need to bring this nation in now to judge you. This nation, for its evil deeds, I will bring in another nation to judge them. As Babylon was judged by the Medes and the Persians, as the Medes and the Persians were judged by the Greeks, as the Greeks were judged by the Romans, as the Romans were judged by the Gauls, and history goes and goes and goes until we get to today. Do you think that God's not going to keep the thing going forward? Do you think God's going to stop with the United States of America? Oh, those are my people. I love me some country music. Get me some fried chicken. I love America. God is tremendously consistent through all of the time, slow to anger, but by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. So that we can wrap our minds around this, God gives Jeremiah a vision. He says in verse 15, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink it. Imagine a cup. The cup of God's wrath. Volume rising. As the disobedience begets disobedience, as generation follows after generation, as idolatry and adultery and fornication follows and follows and follows until finally what happens? The cup reaches a point, doesn't it? 
Israel, you reached the point. And I'm going to bring Babylon. But God says, to Babylon, the cup fills. And my wrath will be poured out upon Babylon. And then there's the Greeks. And then there's the Romans. And then there's the Spanish. And then there's the French. And then there's the English. And then there's the Americans. As the cup of God's wrath is consistently poured upon those who are guilty. This is not God's nation. We proved that a while ago. Look at what he says. He starts with his own people. He starts with his own people. Verse 18, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as at this day. But he goes on. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, and all of his people, and all the mixed tribes among them, and all the kings of the land of Uz, that's Iraq, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Eshkelon, Gaza, Ekron, the remnant of Ashad, Edom, Moab, the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dadan, Tima, Buz, all those who cut the corners of their hair, all the kings of Arabia, all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, all the kings of Media, verse 26, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. That's the book of Revelation that you just saw there. We walked through that last year. God is very consistent. People drink the cup of their own destruction. They bring it upon themselves. Because we do not follow, because we do not heed, because we do not respect God's ethic for our humanity, we become conquered by our own chaos. God says, this is how a family is to be structured and function. I want to do it this way. And the cup fills. This is how I want to run my business. And God says, no, 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 you run it this way. No, no, I want to do it this way. And the cup fills. This is how we treat people groups and races and the cup fills. This is how we're going to pursue these things and these things and these things and these things and the cup fills until finally it reaches its tipping point. God is slow to anger, but he by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. And when you start calling sinful things good things and goodful things, good things, sinful things, the cup starts to fill up real fast. Where you start to wonder if you can even, if it'll even stop. Again, notice the judgment that comes against Israel is a geopolitical force that Israel ticked off. They brought the Babylonians upon themselves. God uses them, proxy, 
to bring about their correction. In the same way that God cursed the land when Adam and Eve forsaked God. We are conquered by the chaos of our own making. I think, I think any person of spiritual discernment would have to look across the landscape of the United States as the words of Jeremiah echo in the back of our ears and say, surely God is consistent. Maybe it'll be China. Maybe God will use China. Maybe God will use Russia. But do not be the arrogant fool who thinks that God will not judge. Because you only like side A of the record. When God says you need to listen to side B too. But surely there must be hope, right? There must be hope. Let's go back to Numbers 14. Go back to Numbers 14. We need to put something in the middle there. We need to put something in the middle. The volume rising, the cup of wrath. What do we put in the middle? A tipping point. Numbers 14, I'm going to start in verse 13. Numbers 14, verse 13 through 20. But Moses said to the Lord, this is right after God said he's going to just wipe everybody out entirely. Moses says to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. You brought this people in you, this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, a covenant God. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it's because the Lord, Yahweh, was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. Verse 17, and now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Saying, look what he says. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. That's amazing. 
Whatever you think about God, you got to fit that in there. Here is a righteous, perfect God who is ready to wipe out a people. But one man stands up and says, will you please forgive them? For you are a gracious, merciful God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God says, okay. I will pardon them. Because you asked. But we know that he does go on and he does not clear the guilty. Israel needed someone to stand in the gap. So let's put that in the middle. That middle song, stand in the gap. Moses has done this before. I'll do it again. He says, God, this is who you are. Please don't wipe them out. God, there is side A and God leans towards side A. God leans towards love. He leans towards mercy. He leans towards graciousness and forgiveness. That's what he wants to do, but it has to be engaged. It has to be tapped into. Someone has to call upon that. On a national level, on an individual level. And Jesus brings this home in a very powerful, powerful way. I want you to leave the Old Testament, and we're going to jump into Matthew 26 for just a little bit. Let me show you two episodes that are back-to-back in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 26. I want you to see what Jesus does. Matthew 26. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. There are two episodes that are very familiar to you if you grew up in church or been around Christians, um, but maybe you'll see something that you didn't see before. This is Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Now, verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And we had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus offers them a cup. What's in the cup? Life and forgiveness. A few hours later, after the Lord's Supper, Jesus in the garden praying. This is Matthew, same chapter, verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, the flesh is weak. Verse 42. Again, for the second time he went and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus takes a cup. And to the disciples, he says here, 
I have a cup for you. Flowing from this cup is forgiveness. Flowing from this cup is grace and life. Whenever you get together, drink of this cup. Remember this cup. I have brought a cup for you. And then Jesus goes to the garden because Jesus knows that there's another cup of which someone must drink. It is the cup of wrath that has been boiling up against the people of Israel and cosmically against all of mankind. For that cup, he knows he has come. He says, Father, if it is your will, I will drink this cup so that they can drink this cup. And so they put him upon a cross. As my sins and your sins and the sins of all of us were poured upon him. And he drank that cup dry. So that we can walk in the freedom of our God. For our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquities of thousands, but by no means will let the guilty go unpunished. A few questions and reflection. Which cup will you drink from? Which cup will you drink from? Jesus' people drink from this cup. It's the cup we've asked for. It's the cup we, we want. We leave our iniquity behind. We leave our sin behind. We leave our wandering behind. And we follow Jesus. We repent. And we practice a life of repentance. And whenever we get together, it is this cup that we celebrate. In fact, next week, Adam's going to come, one of our elders, and he's going to teach more on this cup and the importance of communion. His blood that was spilt. But if you will not follow, then Jesus says, then there's this cup. Notice, there's no middle cup. Right, Mo? There's no middle cup. You can call me judgmental and opaque and rude and jerk and not in touch with the times. I don't care. But there's no middle cup. We either drink from this cup or you drink from this cup. That's it. And are you praying for our country? Are you praying for our country? 
because it's filling up. Will you stand in the gap? I don't need bullets. I need prayers. I don't need speeches. It needs confession. But even in that, even in that, our King will come back again. And we will behold His glory. And we will see Him face to face. Thank you for sharing your time with us and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came, and that's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life, and a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. 